Hey, everybody. Welcome to Ideas On. Today, we're going to talk about something near and dear to every storyteller in the world, of course, stealing things. Storytellers as thieves, because, well, you'll hear, but probably they are. Just a quick intro. Duncan Kennedy. Hello. Jared Wells. Greetings. And Olivia Allen. Hi. I'm Bob, and with us today is good friend, longtime Ideas collaborator, and story master Rick Stone. Rick is the proprietor of the storyintelligence.com website. He's written a wonderful new book called Story Intelligence about the seven powers of story, and he's the host of the Explorations podcast. We're great to have you with us, Rick. Great to be here, Bob. So, as we usually do, a real quick speed round. Let's figure out where we all came at this. Jared, where'd you go on this one? So I, I sort of took the, the stance that I think to consider storytellers thieves, or at least to use so harsh a word, is a rather absurd thing, because the point of story in the history of humanity is to package information and experiences from times immemorial down to today. It's the reason we've been able to survive, the reason we've been able to grow. So I think stealing, if you want to call it that, is an important part of storytelling and one that everyone should practice if they are indeed a storyteller. Okay. Mandatory stealing. Olivia, where'd you go? Um, I talked about a few things. First of all, uh, basically everything is taken from somewhere. Observational things in life, you pick up, you put it in a story. But I, I'm also interested in the ethics of that and what we may or may not should uh, take and put in our stories. I also talked about my hot take in that I think the the whole all the stories I've been told thing is hot nonsense. And um, everyone on this panel is going to disagree with me. I am super ready to fight you. Uh, <laughs> Love it. Love it. But you do bring up a good point, which I hope we can explore a little more, is we live in the age of the fungible content, right? It's not like, you know, when Gutenberg first rolled it out, it was pretty, your, your work was pretty protected. Um, so, Duncan, how about you? Um, I took a different tact looking at what was actually being stolen. So the first one, obviously, that uh, storytellers being thieves in terms of whether intentionally or not, taking from stories that they had heard or they are familiar when they were crafting their own. Uh, the second was the notion of stealing reality because of the control the storyteller has, whether you're back to the town crier and how they would interpret the news to share with the village or today's partisan battles over truth and reality and, uh, and what is fact. And then the third notion was uh, storytellers stealing our imaginations. And that is through the cultural power of successful stories in that, you know, courtesy of George Lucas, when we think of outer space or Gene Roddenberry or maybe uh, Isaac Asimov, if we go back that far, outside of those three, it's pretty hard to come up with an original idea about space travel from a fictional standpoint, just because their broad story universes are so strong and impactful and widespread, it's hard to get away from them and they control a lot of our initial reaction. Cool. And I kind of went up in betwixt and between. I, I definitely fall on the side of, what do you mean stealing? You know, the, nobody owns this stuff. The, this is possessed by the species and it comes out in flavors. And it's very hard, at least speaking for my own uh, efforts, a lot of times it's hard to know, is that something I read or heard from another teller? Or is it something that I synthesized, but the germination of it or the flow of it came from somewhere else? But uh, that's kind of where I went. Rick? There's a great story about Anansi the spider. And, you know, Anansi goes up his ladder to Niami, the sky god, uh, because the people are bored. 
and he hears that he has this something very special beside him. It's a box of thing called stories. He didn't even know what it was, but he heard it was very, very valuable. And so he has to perform some very heroic things to be able to earn the right to have the stories. And then he brings the stories down to the people. So um, I, I think the stories are actually, we don't steal them from each other. We maybe are given them by the gods. And I think that they come down, uh, Jung talked about archetypes. You know, sometimes the same idea shows up in four different places in the earth at the same time. How is that possible? Why does that happen? And um, and I think that these stories are out there. And, you know, Nyami, Nyami, when he opened that box of stories, they all went flying out and, and into the atmosphere. And, but he grabbed a couple and his wife also grabbed a few and his friends grabbed a few. But we're still grabbing those stories out of the sky and out of thin air and, and sharing them with our friends. So I think of storytellers as gifters, not thieves, is that we're gifting people the stories that are told through us. And, sure. and that this notion that we're an author is that that's a very egoic kind of idea that we think oh, it's my story. I created this story. Well, the story created itself and you just happen to be the, the spokesperson for it. I think it's the wrong question, maybe. But, you sure. know, you saying that reminded me and I, I like to tell this is a meta story, right? It's a story about storytelling. So, you know, I learned to tell Rory from you. Uh, from listening to you do it. And it wasn't that you sat down and drilled me. I just learned it as storytellers do from the culture of being around. So, you know, I went along several years and I would tell it and tell it and figuring, you know, I kind of have this right. And then I heard you tell it again. And I realized about 35% of it, the way I told it, had nothing to do with the way you I left stuff out that you had in it. I had added a bunch of stuff you never put in it. It's like, that's sort of the organics of how this stuff works. You know, you, you mentioned the Jungian archetypes. And I, of course, also for this particular blog, I, wanted to, I went back and took a quick look at Campbell, you know, in his seven archetypes. Just the notion, though, of archetypes or character archetypes already says, stealing what? These are basic molecular ingredients in storytelling. Nobody owns hero. Nobody owns mentor. Nobody owns an alchemist. I mean, th those, are, those are big concepts. So, yeah, I, I tend to think storytelling is maybe maybe all art really but story for sure is very very syncretic we, we all grab stuff and run with it yeah I, but i think all art is if you're a painter an artist you know when i was at the art institute in chicago they would send me uh, to go uh, sit in front of a matisse or a picasso and copy it okay mm -hmm. and what why copy a master's work and usually there was, you know, Matisse, some of his drawings were very simple, just maybe four or five lines. And he captured, a, you know, a female body and it was beautiful. And, and, but it was so perfect. And so by following the lines of what someone else did, you know, you can learn something, you can get inside of their skin. And, and I think stories are no different. It's a great tip of the hat, I think, mm. to other artists when we mimic them. It's much like music. You know, we're talking about these elements of story that are all around, you know, and that people could just glom onto and utilize as they need to because they're they're part of the ether of existence in the same way that choosing a key or time signature is always out there for you to grab and create something melodious. Yeah, I, I heard Paul McCartney recently on an interview and he was talking about like Blackberry sings in the dead of night. It just, it, it just he just woke up with it. And he said for two weeks, he thought that probably it was somebody else's song. He wasn't sure. You know, he hears so much music. He, he was sure that. And finally, he started playing it for friends. He said, no, I've never heard anybody play that song before. But he wasn't sure because, you know, when you swim in it, if you're swimming in music or you're swimming in stories, 
you don't know whether you've got something that's original or whether it maybe did I really maybe I borrowed that from somebody else. I don't know. Yeah. So all of this really begs the question to me, where did the notion that we are thieves exactly come from? Who was it that cast that negative attribute? Is it just the fact that story at one point it was, you know, it was, it was an important function of just communication. And then at another point it became something that was productized that you could buy that people were selling yeah. that it became something you make money with. Where did that start in history? And I wonder if in a world dominated by intellectual property, competing intellectual yeah. properties, if that has, uh, aggravated that uh, sentiment more. What are the ethics around that in a world where there's two things going on that may be pushing in opposite directions? One is <laughs> in the world of the thing euphemistically now known as the content creator, whatever that means, almost anything is an intellectual property. On the other side, in the age of the internet, almost anything is gettable. You can go find it and grab it. I think we have to keep in mind that there are always people on the other side of the thing on the internet, people who exist out there. So you can't just pretend that everything is to be taken as it is. Mm -hmm. Like I totally, archetypes are beautiful things and they're templates. You can't just go take someone's creation for your own. That's why you can't just take a picture and put it in your mm -hmm. own work if it's copyrighted because that's somebody's art. I want you to tell the story because we've laughed about it offline. Tell the story about self-plagiarism. Okay. So I go to college and let's say I'm writing a paper and I wrote another paper in the past. If I'm going to like use a piece from that other paper in this paper and they're on basically the same topic, first of all, I need to quote myself. Why? Because I had it explained to me one time about why they do it. And it kind of made sense. But I think that goes back to Duncan's point and Rick's point about McCartney. I can't paint, but I can tell you in music, most players, if they're honest, will tell you, I don't know where that lick came from. I've been playing it that way. I probably got it by listening to somebody, you know, or consciously got it. I mean, I have about a half a dozen guitar moves and, and it goes back to the Rory story, right? I learned them intentionally saying, I want to play that exactly like Steve Gillette. I want to play that exactly like Dylan. I want to play that exactly like Steve Stills. Well, where and the learn and learn and learn. And then you, you probably don't ever get there, but it's their lick. In my mind, it's that, yeah, that's Steve Stills' lick. So where are the boundaries of this ownership? So one of the things I referenced was at the International Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee. And so storyteller Emeritus J. O'Callaghan's telling his story Saturday afternoon and the train comes through town right rattling right behind the stage the way they have it set up there and, and with a large tent. And he weaves the train into the story. So it's this <laughs> visceral experience. The people had heard the story before, but they'd never heard it that way because the train was there and you can't ignore it. It's, you can't pause. You know, so he just weaves it into the story. Does that mean you can't weave a train into a story? <laughs> the ones running behind the train tracks. If you're telling a story, does does he own that? I mean, he owned that moment that people talk about. But you know, where's the boundaries of the thievery to happen if somebody else uses a train in the background as a story element? If you were to take J.K. Rowling's writing and write the Hogwarts Express into your story, unless you're writing fan fiction, then that's questionable ethics. Oh, okay. But let's talk about fan fiction because I think that's a whole other thing, right? I will argue probably been around in some form for a long time, but relatively new because it's easy to do now because we have these platforms to disseminate it. 
Is that some form of misappropriation? Well, I think that's just an entirely different genre. It's creativity in that you're taking someone's established work and just basically playing around with it. It's probably a controversial take in some circles, but I think it's great. Isn't fan fiction, at least uh, I'm not into the world all that much, but I mean, I've always thought of it as not too terribly different from the tradition of storytelling in itself is what I consider it to be. It's it's where all of the knowledge that we have is stored, all the lessons that we have, everything we know about ourselves and the universe around us is stored in this thing called storytelling. And I've always thought of fan fiction as it's just sort of that on a micro scale. It's a world that is established, but it's still just building on the world. It's still just taking new experiences and adding them into that brain of, of whatever that world is. But Rick, isn't something like the Anansi stories or something like the stories that, that our pal Larry Littlebird tells about coyote or bear or, or, or wolf, isn't that really fan fiction? I got to believe those yeah. were built on over time. Yeah, and, and just think of the, the Silk Road, okay? What happened for hundreds of thousands, you know, thousands of years as people traveled, merchants traveled, you know, they brought their stories with them and they're sitting at the inn or around, at, you know, at the oasis or whatever. They're meeting people from other parts of the world and they're telling their stories and people transpose it into their cultural milieu. And you suddenly look around and you start looking at folk literature and you find the same story showing up all over the place. You know, they've got a different character name, but, they, you know, essentially it's the same story. And I, I think, you know, with fan fiction, that's what people are doing today is they're they're just building off of a story they read instead of heard. Okay. So this is an interesting question, you know, get into intellectual property. It's in a book, it's been written and someone has a copyright, a big C with a circle on it, you know, and then they own it. But when oral culture, which was pretty much dominant in this world up until just a few hundred years ago, really the last couple hundred years, there wasn't a copy. Someone didn't, didn't say, Hey, no, I'm going to tell you a story, but you know, I own this story. You can't repeat <laughs> it anywhere. You know, you know. People didn't do that. They, they gave the story away and people took the story and they ran with it and they told it again and they they told it again and it changed and it transmuted, but, you know, and it became a little something else. Isn't that what people are doing with fan fiction? Well, don't you think it's a little bit different if you take characters and the world from someone's established piece and basically write another story that exists with those exact characters and within that exact world? What I get from it is you're comparing two seeing different instances of similar folkloric characters in different places around the world. I don't know, for example, multiple cultures having the concept of seal women or mermaids or whatever. To me, that's a lot different than, I don't know, Marvel fan fiction. Yeah, but fan fiction comes from a void. You does think it, that, Yes, it does. Think about Star Trek. Think about Star Wars. Star Wars came out and this immense universe was created. And for the first, I don't know, 15 years, maybe there was only three movies and fans had a thirst. They wanted to live in that reality. And George Lucas was lazy oh, and busy with other stuff. And so there was yeah. only three movies. But I wanted to know more about these characters. And there's huge, you know, uh, story arcs for Luke and Darth and Leia and everything. And sure, Lucas got around to doing that. But you had impatient fans who wanted to speculate what would happen and live in that universe. You know, same thing with um, with Star Trek. Yeah, there were, you know, 72 episodes. But... That was only over the course of three years, but it created this, you know, wagon train in space, as Gene Roddenberry pitched it, in terms of there's this story arc in this universe with this wealth of characters that people who loved that felt, you know, wanted to live in and experience more than just what the original author had created. So there's an homage to it as long as you're respectful to it. 
And if they're not generating any money from it, it's purely based on their their fan fiction and not trying to make some scratch out of it. You know, it's okay. So that's the thing. It would it would probably not be the move to publish a piece of fan fiction. I think most people who write fan fiction would agree with that, unless you change the names. And it just feels like if it's someone's exact characters. That's not what you should do. Well, and I think you bring up something really, that, that last sentence is really interesting. It's not what you should do. Set aside whether it's legal or not, right? It's not nice. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, no. there, there is a it's point where you hard. say, hey, Rick, that story you wrote and published in your book that I know was a work of original authorship. I really love it. Can I borrow that talking frog character? Because I just love him. I'm going to change his name. Is that? I mean, the, and I don't know where the where the various shades of gray on that are. Right? There, there are all kinds of nuances. It seems to me one of the answers to well, if storytellers are thieves, how come that that is thought of? To me, it started when you could charge for your story. I That's mean, my, yeah. As soon as you can charge for your story, or by the way, your song or your poem or or your picture, right? The people who did the cave paintings in France of the water buffalo um they didn't get there were no royalties on that they, oh no they they were they, you had to pay for admission to get into the cave. <laughs> yeah, well you really did because it was a it was usually like you know like a, a piece of mutton or something it, to it get was a kilometer the walk in the dark just to get where it was but you know, it was funny there, there's an old adage about advertising that until the early 1900s particularly in the united states it was thought of as a kind of a social gaffe if you yeah. went out and bought a new a new pair of boots right well what did he buy a new pair of boots? Those boots were just, you could have mended those boots. What's wrong with him? Then advertising happened. And all of a sudden, no, you need a new pair of boots. You need to smell better. You need, you know, so it's funny how cultures you know, wrap around this stuff. Okay, 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 okay. You can mend your boots and have them fulfill the same function as they were before. You cannot have one story instead of two stories and have it fulfilling the same function, because that is not the same story. You know, it's an interesting question here. You think about music, and sometimes when you hear uh, where people go to court because they feel like their song was stolen, mm -hmm. you know, at what point does a song that was my song, what's been changed over here? At one point, does it original? Did you take a couple chords? Is that a, that's okay? But there's there's some line, and I don't know how they end up. But at some point, you go, you know, that sounds too much like the like like his song, and you have you've appropriated his song. And, well, and, and the the courts have weighed in on that, right? Yeah. I, and I wrote this in my blog. In music, it's a known practice. You take a tune you like, you do an inversion, you change yep. the key, and you slow it down. And that's fair game. You could get away with that. You, you talk about what uh, sharpens my pencil. When I'm emperor, sampling is going to be punishable by banishment because I just think sampling is wrong. Unless it's a what pure. What do you mean tone. sampling? It's a, if unless it's a pure tone, that's my lick. You don't get to just record it and reuse it without talking to me. But that's the way it works. They notify the artist that they're going to be using the sample. They pay them the royalty rights for using it. If someone someone goes to Rawlings' work and and lives Hogwarts and and lifts all the main characters and, and builds a new story around it. They're in a sense sampling. That leads to another question for me. The other side is when does something that began potentially as an original work finally migrate its way into the common domain? Right. I'll give you an example. The concept of orcs and elves and dwarves, the way Tolkien used to characterize them. 
that's commonly used now, and that language is commonly used across people who write Tolkien fantasy. Tolkien didn't make that up. I, I got Tolkien didn't make that up. Got it. Not from mythologies. Somebody did. So, so my point is, people. Yeah. So we can't say that it was Tolkien who originated that. I didn't Tolkien it. used it, I didn't and other people it. use it. I didn't say it was. I said someone originated it, but by the time Tolkien came along, and lots and lots and lots of other writers, those things, those things were already absorbed into the common the common pool of, of story assets. And, and it'd be fun to figure out what that process is. I mean, yeah. Ask Paul McCartney. He owns the licensing rights to happy birthday. Yeah. Right. Right. He does. Yeah. And Disney, you know, not on the businessman, which is really interesting. Um, you know, that's another one you, you got, you don't have to always own it. Sometimes a, a story or a character or a piece of music is so highly identified with someone who was a licensed user of it that they de facto become the perceived owner of it. So it's just, it's just fun. George Carlin in the seven words you can't say on TV, you know? In the grand tradition of storytellers, we have managed to do what storytellers always do, which is between um, five storytellers, we've got 241 opinions, which is of course what makes the whole tradition wonderful. So that was a great flog. Uh, where we agree is that there's lots of folks borrowing and swapping and sharing and tweaking and customizing. I do think there's an ethical responsibility among writers and artists. And as Mark Twain said, as I put in my blog, you know, burglars, congressmen, all of us in the trade, there is an ethical threshold. And at the end of the day, probably everybody's better served if we all just voluntarily sort of think about that as we go forward. Well, Rick, thanks for uh, coming back to the tribe today to sit in. It's great to see you. We, uh, uh, it feels like old home weight to me. Well, it Look is. forward to getting your book. Absolutely. Yeah. So the title of the book is Story Intelligence. Uh, Story Intelligence. By myself and my partner, Scott Livengood. And uh, it's called Story Intelligence, Mastering Story, Mastering Life. And it really looks at uh, the power of story. We talk about seven powers of story. And it tries to look at the his stories intersect with every dimension of, uh, of humanity. And that it's really fundamental to who we are as human beings. We can get that on Amazon and regular places we get books. Yeah, it'll be available on Amazon. And by the way, there's a, there's a lovely little piece uh, where I interview Bob uh, about ideas and ideas work. That's in the, that's in the last chapter. So I hope I didn't have all my good stuff on the cutting room floor. We'll we'll see. So uh, there's there's I think that, I think there's four words left from the interview. <laughs> As I like to say too, when I when I talk to people about storytelling, it's the way a fel- a, a relatively defenseless animal with no teeth, claws, and the inability to run fast, whose young take years to be on their own. It's how we took over a planet. <laughs> so whatever storytelling is, we probably all ought to understand it. Thanks everybody. Appreciate you guys today, and and thanks for tuning in. And uh, just remember, check us out online at Ideas On. We're on YouTube, and uh, absolutely go check out our blog online at ideasorlando.com. Thanks a lot. See you soon.